From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Oh, America. The president tweeted, Then how come low IQ crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? She was bleeding badly from a facelift. Time to get out the barbecue. The Congressional Budget Office issued its analysis of the Senate health care bill. It found that by 2026, 22 million more Americans would be uninsured than under current law. Dust off the lawn chairs. White House holding yet another press briefing that you are not allowed to see or hear live. Crack open a cold one. 90-day ban on travelers from six Muslim-majority countries, as well as a 120-day ban on all refugees. Eh, come to think of it, America doesn't sound so great. Canada, on the other hand, is downright celebratory. A flourishing economy, Justin Trudeau, a prime minister with the philosophy of tolerance and ultra-cute. And July 1st is Canada's birthday. A big one. Happy 150th, Canada. Bon fight, Canada. Happy Canada 150. Be safe. And yet, most Canadians sound more like this. I don't understand the, to celebrate the 150 uh, anniversary of Canada. For me, it doesn't mean anything. Writing in the New York Times this week, journalist Stephen Marsh says that Canada defied the waves of Western populism that helped usher in Brexit and Donald Trump precisely because it's not so patriotic. First of all, we have two founding peoples, right? We have French and English Canadians. And what we're commemorating 150 years ago was Confederation, which was the fusion of these British provinces together in a way that really made nobody very happy. And because of that, national symbols are very few and kind of very empty, like maple syrup or the beaver. The thing that's kind of funny about that is that we actually have an incredibly strong consensus about our political vision, which is quite contradictory, but I think the two are related. Hmm. There is this CBC documentary series called Canada, the Story of Us, which is perfect sesquicentennial material, but... Yep. It took a whole heap of abuse. Why? I don't think Canada is a story that can be told from one perspective. And, of course, the people who jumped on it right away were Quebec politicians who thought that it didn't take a French-Canadian point of view. It didn't really take an indigenous point of view either, which is a sort of more glaring error to me. And it also kind of misrepresented the East Coast. That's one example. But as I've been talking to people in Canadian radio about this piece I wrote for the New York Times, they will say, well, what about the cost? Like, how expensive are these celebrations? And that, to me, is kind of the perfect Canadian thing. It's like... You know, in Russia, they don't really count the cost of flags when they're doing their national <laughs> parades. You know, when America has its 250th anniversary, no one is going to be complaining about the cost. There is a more serious case, which is the Resist 150 movement, which is a indigenous rights movement and sees Canada strictly as a colonial project, which I think is absolutely fair. And that we were trying to get until very recently towards something closer to truth and reconciliation with our indigenous population and celebrating confederation which was totally exclusionary, is not a particularly good way to start. It sounds to me that the very notion of patriotism is very different there than it is here in the States. Here it's my flag is bigger than your flag and love it or leave it and my country right or wrong, not so much north of the border. No, 
it's like my country is wrong even when it's right tends to be more the Canadian point of view. The deep roots of this are, of course, Quebec separatism, which has been the political issue of my lifetime. In 1995, the country nearly broke up. It came within one percentage point in the referendum of Quebec separating. And there already is a white ethno-nationalist party in this country. It's called the Parti Québécois, and they want to end Canada. And that's why it's unique among Australia, Britain, the whole Anglosphere, in that people who express more patriotism are also much more in favor of multiculturalism. You've just identified another big difference. We here have e pluribus unum, the melting pot from the many one, that is ingrained in us from childhood. Yeah, it's very interesting, that distinction to me. Because, you know, multiculturalism in Canada is literally an explicit government policy. It's in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that was ratified in 1982, which is basically our constitution, and which says very clearly that new Canadians are enjoined to maintain their heritage. They're told to maintain their heritage. And so there is not this drive to become one people. In fact, this fantasy of like a post-racial future, which so much of American hope is invested in, from a Canadian point of view, that would be insane. We grew up hearing, among other things, about the American way. Your politicians sometimes reject the notion of the Canadian way. There is no Canadian way. Justin's father, Pierre, who wrote the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and was a great prime minister of our past, I mean, he said, there's no ideal, there's no model. And as he said, any attempt to create that kind of uniformity always devolves into hatred. The variety of human experience, the variety of human understandings of the world, the ability to encounter that difference, that's the glory of living at this time in history. It's so sad that people are running away from that at the exact moment when it has become so possible. And I think that's what Canada offers. It's maybe that vision of how to negotiate difference. Can you give me an example of how these differing views of multiculturalism actually play out in the real world? For example, our prime minister, he's obviously like a walking billboard for these values that I'm talking about. We're speaking of Justin Trudeau. Yeah, he went to the Pride Parade and he was wearing rainbow socks for Pride, but they also said Eid Mubarak on them because... Ramadan was ending that night, too. So that's a political symbol that Justin Trudeau consciously evoked. And the idea that anyone would think of that as like, oh, he should only be wearing the maple leaf, no one would ever believe that. It strikes me that as a country, you have a, a lot to be proud of. For example, rationality. Shouldn't you be kind of strutting at your sesquicentennial? Our virtues are not the kind that you can strut around. For example, my mother broke her arm, and I took her to the hospital and she had to have surgery and it took a long time, but it was free. It was all free. And then we got out. I saw the guy selling hot dogs outside on the corner and I thought that guy would get exactly the same treatment as my mother. That's a real achievement for a political entity in the 21st century. But on the other hand, how are you supposed to wave that around? We certainly have a lot of racism and I don't want to paint us as a utopia or something like that. We definitely are not. But a lot of surveys say that we're the most tolerant country on earth when it comes to race. But how can you really be proud of that? Because all you're saying is that you're not quite as insane as everybody else. I mean, you don't get a cookie because you're not as racist as another country. All right, Canada is not a utopia. And do you have your share, I suppose, of nativists and nationalists and populists? How big of an impact have nationalist parties had in Canada? My opinion is that we have virtually none of it. 
The avatar of that radical fringe is a woman named Kelly Leach. And in the conservative race that just happened, she got 6%. She got crushed. Multiculturalism has really worked well for us. Our immigration patterns have been very disciplined and very practical-minded at the same time as being relatively idealistic. And, you know, also, because our healthcare is paid for and education is a public good, the vagaries of the 21st century economy are not hitting us as hard as they hit Britain or they hit the U.S. And so those measures of protection really do provide you a buffer from that ferocious, angry white people backlash. Even your conservatism is different. Your previous prime minister, Stephen Harper, was in office for quite a while. And it was easy to look at him and say, well, he is just a carbon copy of George W. Bush. But actually, no. I think the real difference between Canada and America is not in the liberal wings of the political spectrum. Our conservatism has remained, for the most part, sane. And there are several reasons for that. One is to win an election in Canada, the Ohio of Canada, like the zone that you really have to win, is the suburbs of Toronto. And the suburbs of Toronto are all new Canadians. A lot of Sikhs, a lot of different communities from all over the world. And he knew that. And his party made a huge effort and succeeded in winning over those constituencies. There are exceptions, like Kelly Leach. But for the most part, I would say Canadian conservatives believe very much in multiculturalism. So we started this conversation talking about Canada Day and the sesquicentennial. And if it were here, there would be American flags in front of just about every door and a lot of fireworks. What will it look like in Canada? It, it'll have all that stuff, just much, much smaller. This is a great moment for Canada. Our economy's booming. We have Drake. We have Justin Trudeau. We have a lot going for us. And I think there's just not the showiness about it. I do think that's because patriotism is the excuse that countries give to themselves for their failures. If you want patriotic displays, go to Russia. You'll find one every week. But... Their life expectancy is going down. Their economy is crumbling. They need patriotism. Canadians kind of don't need it. We have hospitals. <laughs> Steve, thank you. You're welcome. Stephen Marsh writes for Esquire, The New York Times, and Atlantic, and is the author of, most recently, The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Coming up... An obligation to grieve in the media as well as life. This is On the Media. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Back in the USA, in the last month, three trials of police officers who shot and killed unarmed black men came to a head. A Minnesota police officer acquitted in the death of Philando Castile, a fatal encounter during a traffic stop broadcast on Facebook Live. A jury found former Milwaukee police officer Dominique Hagen-Brown not guilty of reckless homicide for shooting Silville Smith last August. Deadlocked jury in the Samuel DeBose shooting case. That makes three officers tried in a single week for shooting a black man, not one convicted. After the verdict in Minnesota, Philando Castile's mother took to the the podium. There has always been a systemic problem in the state of Minnesota. The system continues to fail black people and they will continue to fail you all. Like I said, because this happened with Orlando, when they get done with us, 
They're coming from you, for you, for you and all your interracial children. Y'all are next. And you'll be standing up here fighting for justice just as well as I am. It's an all-too-familiar sentiment, one we've heard from so many Black families. If it takes the rest of my life, I'm going to fight for justice for my son. And not only my son, for other people's sons. It needs to be some reform and change across this nation, because if not, America's going to be in trouble. I do not want my son's death to be in vain. I want it to lead to incredible change, change that makes the St. Louis region better for everyone. Defend the victim, decry racism, condemn the system, campaign for justice. This grim ritual dates back to Mamie Till Mobley, who in 1955 decided to publish a photo of her son Emmett Till in an open casket, his face brutalized, so the whole nation could see what happened to him. Michael Denzel Smith recently wrote in The New Republic that now black families feel obliged to mourn in public. They know exactly what is in store for them. They're going to be hounded by journalists. They're going to be expected to go on television and speak eloquently about how much they hope for justice in the system. There's often an ask for forgiveness. My question, though, is do they always feel like they have a choice in many respects? And they do feel compelled. I mean, we're dealing with this history that Mamie Till Mobley is really responsible for in publishing the picture of Emmett Till in the open casket, his body mutilated in Jet magazine, and and saying, we know what the power of these images are. We know what the power of telling our stories is. It can spark activism. It can spark movements. In your New Republic piece, you focus on a couple of recent memoirs. One is Rest in Power, The Enduring Life of Trayvon Martin by Sabrina Fulton and Tracy Martin. Sabrina Fulton writes that she did not want to go to Sanford, Florida ever, the place where her child was taken away from her. And she was compelled to do so because the police had not made an arrest. Their attorney said to to Tracy Martin, we need the mother to see and feel that maternal love to know that this was a child that was actually cared for. Tracy Martin, Trayvon Martin's father, was doing television interviews, interviews with print journalists, and he was there. And he says over and over again, I'm a truck driver, just reiterating his regularness to say that I wasn't prepared for this role. I was not wanting to be in the spotlight. So a lot of people think that um, everything that we're going through uh, with writing the book and, and just being a spokesman for the voiceless, they think it's an easy road. Mm-hmm. But you know, every day you wake up with that with that burden that your your child is not here and that uh, you know he's not here because of a senseless act of violence. And so it's a tough road, but we uh, we know that this is something that we have to do. For the parents, you wrote, what is being asked of them is to turn their personal pain into a healing process for the rest of the country. The same nation that denies the problem of racist violence even exists asks the most vulnerable to diagnose and treat it. My deeper question there is, do we actually care enough about the people to say, you get to choose how you grieve? You get to do that without our pressure, without feeling obliged to teach us, because we care about you as a person and whether or not you'd survive. 
Let's talk about the memoir of Michael Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden. It's called Tell the Truth and Shame the Devil, The Life, Legacy, and Love of My Son, Michael Brown. You say it takes on an even bleaker task, the labor of rehabilitating her son's image. Yes, he's been depicted as a thug. That has in part to do with the testimony of former police officer Darren Wilson. He says that he looked like a monster. He was hulking over him, and he thought that, you know, his life was in danger after seeing that convenience store footage of him, unclear but understood to be him stealing these cigarillos. He fit every stereotype of young black men. He had Uh, it coming. He had it coming. And Leslie McSpadden... What she does is talk about the tenderness with which he loved her. You know, the smile that she found joy in seeing and the ways in which she was trying to raise him and produce a man that hopefully wouldn't be talked about in this way. The ways in which she struggled as a teenage mother in poverty, as a victim of domestic violence. I mean, the school that Michael Brown went to, having lost its accreditation, these are the things that they were up against, and yet she fought to ensure that he did graduate and that he had a plan for his future. And Just saying, we were also a normal American family struggling, trying to make it. There was an article in the New York Times last month that reported that when police go on trial for shooting an unarmed black man, questions of guilt wrote the Times, do not hang on who fired the fatal shot, but on what officers were thinking when they pulled the trigger. As soon as the officer gets on the stand and subjectively says, I was fearing for my life, many juries aren't going to convict. Usually it's not just whites on those juries. So empathy, identification, these are crucial. Who better than parents to build it? Absolutely. I mean, these are learned behaviors. I mean, it's in the sort of ether of our communities, our our society. That group of teenagers that's loud and boisterous and just being teenagers, they're a threat. If we are to develop that sort of empathy that teaches us to not view that as a direct threat, maybe these stories will serve some purpose. So... James Baldwin agrees with you. (laughs) He repeatedly expressed the idea that we keep asking those most vulnerable to racism to fix racism. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, If I'm not the nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. And the future of the country depends on that, whether or not it's able to ask that question. Can I ask you something? Yes. Would you roll your eyes if you saw some white person on the subway reading one of these books? I'm a little skeptical. I don't necessarily say that I'd rolled my eyes, but I am curious about what their level of engagement is and what their purpose for engagement is. Okay. Mm-hmm. This seems to leave us in a bind. Yeah. Baldwin says that it's up to white people to look into themselves for the cure. But when white people strive to look into their hearts, make common cause, they often can be castigated as clueless or presumptuous. There was a painting by white artist Dana Schutz Mm -hmm. of Emmett Till in his casket. It was shown at uh, the Whitney. It sparked a big 
backlash, and she was blasted for appropriating black pain. So if those who suffer most from racism shouldn't have to bear the responsibility for solving it, and if those who enjoy privilege in a racist system shouldn't presume to feel outrage from racism or empathy for its victims, where does it leave us? I mean, what is the right way to behave? So this is getting into sort of this fear of being perceived as doing it wrong and being chastised by someone yeah, within that's, that group. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Right? Uh, <laughs> How do you do it right? You're going to do it wrong. There is a frustration among marginalized people. There's a wealth of information out there. We've given it to you over and over again. When do you seek it out on your own? Why do you keep asking and demanding of my personal time to teach you? And I think that also you have to be prepared to be uncomfortable and to be told that you're doing it wrong and like be open to listening. That's the part that a lot of people get further wrong is that they're not open. It's an assault on their character in some way to being told that they did it the wrong way. But if I tell you what I need from you is something different and you believe in this cause, why won't you listen? I didn't actually see the painting by Dana Schutz. Was it offensive? Yeah, it was offensive in its mediocrity in that it just didn't say anything, right? It's just a painting of the famous photo that we all know. It added nothing new to this discussion. And it was particularly offensive that the painting was done by a white woman when the death of Emmett Till, the responsibility falls a lot on the white woman who told lies about his behavior that day. The lynchings that were commonplace, were often the result of the lies that white women told or were forced to tell about whether or not they were assaulted by black men. The ask of the painting itself is to say, bring in your perspective as a white woman who means well, who feels some empathy for Mamie Till Mobley, to say, what does it feel like to be the protected, to have someone killed in your name, in your honor? It's kind of a big ask. It's I mean, a big ask. There have to be big asks. I think that she related to Mamie Till Mobley from the perspective of being a mother and said. losing a child. I mean, that's fine, but that doesn't broaden our discussion any further. So if you don't enter this arena with the assumption that you are the beneficiary of this system and you don't express that in your art, you're just borrowing pain and giving yourself a pass. Exactly. Artists can say, I should be able to do what I want, but nobody is thereby absolved of any criticism for doing so. We have to criticize. We have to keep asking questions of everything we produce. And if we don't, we're again shirking a responsibility to ourselves to dig deeper into these identities that maybe we did not choose, but have overdetermined our lives together in our relation to one another and the systems that produce them. And if we're not asking those questions, how do we ever expect these problems to be solved? Thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Denzel Smith is author of the New York Times bestseller, Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching, A Young Black Man's Education. America has many calls to action and many anthems.
Coming up, the story of one of the most enduring. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. There are many Americas. Nowadays, they barely speak to each other. But during the most perilous years of the last century, one young composer went in search of a sound that melded many of its strains into something singular and new. He was a man of the left, though of no political party, gay, but neither closeted nor out, Jewish, but agnostic, unless you count music as a religion. On this July 4th weekend, WNYC's Sarah Fishko tells his story. The Aaron Copeland story is filled with ironies. For one thing, Copeland reached the height of his artistry and fame during the most desperate times in 20th century America, the era of the Great Depression and the years of World War II. And for another... He first thought about creating music that sounded uniquely American only after he had left America, Brooklyn to be exact, for Europe in 1921. He recalled later he had read about an American music school being formed that very year, post-World War I, outside Paris. The instant I read about it, I thought, oh, gee, I don't know a soul in France. This would be a way of going and at least having some friends around and getting a, a start. So off he went. Once there, Copeland began to search for a compositional style. In his own way, says Judith Tick, who co-wrote Aaron Copeland's America. He graduated high school and did not go to college. Instead, he became an apprentice. His mentor in Paris was the famed Nadia Boulanger, who would go on to train everyone, from Quincy Jones to Philip Glass. He absolutely adored the milieu that Nadia Boulanger created around her, which was premised on the notion that a composer had to find his own voice. And for a while, looking for his own voice, he lived the Paris life, that lost generation life we know a little bit about from Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, artists and thinkers looking for new forms, new ideas. Copeland used to wander over to Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company bookshop on the Rue de Lodion. 
One would see Joyce there every evening and uh, André Gide go across the street for French books. I really lived through this whole sense of getting rid of the past and developing something new of our own time. As it turned out, Copeland's teacher pushed him toward the new American jazz. And for the first time, it excited him. The great charm of jazz hit me from um, 3,000 miles away, you might say. In Paris, it seemed much more American. He wrote this piece, Jazzy, around that time. For him, jazz was the catalyst. It forced him to ask what would be a way to write concert music that sounded American. After all, pretty much every other country had its own distinctive classical music, said Copeland later to a group of college students. The 20s was a period of Bartok writing specifically Hungarian music. Uh, Stravinsky was very Russian. He couldn't possibly have been anything else. Debussy was terribly French. And uh, so that it seemed, it seemed like only a- right for America's music to have a recognizable character, too. And he came back to New York determined to write American music. Back in the U.S., he hadn't solved it yet. Author Paula Musigate says he was still writing as a post-World War I modernist in a very individualistic style. The music is more atonal. It's a stark difference from the more Americana sound that you tend to associate with Copeland. And it wasn't very popular. He and the world kissed modernism goodbye in the next decade. When the 1930s hit, modernism crashed as sharply as the stock market did in 1929. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. Copeland, along with millions of Americans, heard President Franklin Roosevelt broadcast his first fireside chat during the Great Depression. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It was in these years that FDR created the New Deal and said to the American people, we are all in this. Together, we cannot fail. And a spirit of liberalism rose in the country. Americans trying to recover from the crash, united around progressive ideas. Roosevelt's victories in 1932, and especially in 1936, were gigantic. Writer and historian Sam Tannenhaus. Democrats had majorities of a kind that are almost inconceivable today. This was not an era like our own of divided government. This was the Democratic Party forming coalitions with liberal Republicans. There was not only room for artists in this society, it actually presented them with a new civic identity and responsibility. The federal government was funding programs for artists, including writers, poets, performers, and composers. Copeland jumped right in. He was active in the Young Composers Group, the Composers Collective, and in 1937, he co-founded the American Composers Alliance. This was growing into the broadest left-wing culture America has ever known. They called it the Popular Front. John Wiener teaches history at UC Irvine. He says it was a movement, anti-fascist, pro-union, civil libertarian, 
Believe it or not, for a time, the slogan of the Popular Front was communism is 20th century Americanism. They wanted to be good Americans. They believed in American ideals. For them, there was no conflict between being a leftist and being a a good American, believing in equality and freedom of speech. Artists like Copeland were captivated by the sense that they could build nothing short of a new kind of United States. Social security was created. Unions gained the right to strike. And the idea emerged that the common man, a key phrase of the moment, could achieve just about anything. Culturally, a new idea of America was being formed in two places in particular, through jazz, which was multiracial. It was dominated by African-American musicians with some great white musicians and even some integrated bands like Benny Goodman's and Hollywood. Hollywood was the creation of immigrant Jews for the most part who came up with this idea of an ideal America. So the notion of what the utopian American culture could be was coming from a much wider stream of sources than it ever had before. That's the beginning of mass culture in America. Movies, music, comic strips, the radio. To see the merging of traditional American patriotism with the spirit of the New Deal and with a little of the common man thrown in, you had only to go to a Frank Capra film. Thomas Doherty, author of Projections of War, prefers Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Which really comes at a time in which uh, America is looking at what will probably be a Second World War. What do you think? Daniel Boone's lost. That montage of Jimmy Stewart as Jefferson Smith. Lost in the wilds of Washington. Taking the tour of Washington when he first comes to town can uh, still uh, bring tears to even a cynical American eye when he you know, goes through all the, the great uh, secular cathedrals of American life, ending at the Lincoln Memorial. Which brings us back to Aaron Copeland, who was as swept up as anyone in the urgent collective spirit of the moment in the 1930s. It was thrilling. I think you can look at the 1930s as the beginning of a renaissance of awareness about American folk music. As I went a-walking and a-rambling one day. But Alan Lomax is a key figure in any understanding of what Copeland is about. He was such a radical collector of Anglo-American and African-American folk music at a time when people really didn't understand what this was. And the other was a cowboy and a Copeland knew Lomax. He used to go over to his house and listen to music. Copeland soaked up the tunes. Lomax lived his life in the field. He lived his life in a truck, weighted down with tape recorders and tape machines, and he went to prisons and flood islands and remote places and recorded people. Copeland took what he needed wherever he could get. It found its way to his musical consciousness because it was so much in the environment. By the late 30s, Copeland's piece Billy the Kid was filled with spare, open chords and folk-inspired melodies. The composer had arrived at what turned out to be a signature sound. 
Where do you place him in the use of this sound with these relatively unusual intervals for that time? I place him at the top of that. I'm sitting opposite composer John Corleano, who's at the piano. He may not have been the very first, but he was certainly the one that is most recognized. When that sound comes, and it's called Americana, by the way. What was he using to create that sound? Well, Aaron Copland wanted to preserve the sense of tonality, the sense of being in a key. The chords that came out of those scales were chords that had been used for 200 years. And he wanted to make fresh chords that still could be in a key. And to just Tonal composers that, had, for the most part, made chords built around conventional thirds, that is, built around every other note in the basic scale. We have a chord. Chords harmonize. What Copland did was he decided that you didn't have to build chords on every other note. You could do other ways of combining notes to make a sound like a chord. For example, you can use just one note above the... and you can get a beautiful sound if you play that. Copeland um, used very often two-note chords, and when he had more than two notes, they were very far apart or very close together, but they didn't have this chain of thirds, so they sounded very sparse, and yet sounded very beautiful. So there it was, a non-European, somewhat radical, very accessible American style. Tender and yet triumphant, simplified to go along with the progressive populist politics that had led Copeland in this direction in the first place. And it was patriotic, in keeping with a moment that celebrated the so-called common man. Next stop, Hollywood, to write the score for the film Of Mice and Men. Aaron Copeland was now a celebrity, and he was a gay Jewish celebrity at that. He was greatly admired by other American composers and had public acceptance as well. By the time of World War II, he was one of a group of leading American composers asked to contribute an orchestral fanfare to the war effort. It was the conductor Eugene Goossens of the Cincinnati Symphony who put out the call, and Copeland set to work on a short piece, something that might rally support and spirit. As the fanfare began to take shape, the war was on the minds of the country's leaders and citizens, says Harvey J.K., author of The Fight for the Four Freedoms. It was hard, if not impossible, to think of anything else, and that had been true for the last few years. The debate at the time, it's not just should the United States enter the war or not, but what does America stand for? I mean, what's the meaning of America? Columbia presents another of its programs in which prominent speakers talk about current topics of vital national interest. The debate about America played out on the air. A Henry Wallace speech of 1942 had a clear common man message. Everywhere the common people are on the march, By the millions, they are learning to read and write, learning to think together, learning to use tools. Wallace was vice president under FDR. His widely heard speech called for what he termed the century of the common man. 
He warned citizens that they must learn to self-govern and to fear the demagogue. It is easy for demagogues to arise and prostitute the mind of the common man to their own base end. Such a demagogue may get financial help from some person of wealth who is unaware of what the end result will be. The common man idea was picked up instantly by NBC. Not much more than a month later, the network ran a star-studded radio spectacular called Toward the Century of the Common Man. Next, it appeared in theaters as a U.S. propaganda film with patriotic music and images added to Wallace's stirring words. No Nazi counter-revolution will stop it. The common man will smoke the Hitler stooges out into the open in the United States. He will destroy their influence. The common man's speech, Sam Tannenhaus reminds us, was a direct response to the views of time-life magnate Henry Luce, whose famous essay in Life magazine heralded what Luce had called the American century. America would be the powerhouse that would lead the Western Democratic alliance and kind of bring its industrial and democratic might to the world. A more imperialist idea of where America would wind up after the war. When the Luce essay appeared in Life, Orson Welles wrote, If Mr. Luce's prediction of the American century will come true, God help us all. Aaron Copeland, writing his fanfare in 1942, commented with his music. The common man moment was dominating the discourse. Am I going to call this the fanfare for democracy? That was his first thought. Just as the composer was searching for a title for his piece. Second thought is, will I call it the fanfare for the four freedoms? Because that's the key words of the day. By then, it seemed right to call it fanfare for the common man. The title and the piece captured the public imagination. Copeland had searched for an imposed simplicity in his music. This was one of the most celebrated examples. If you take Fanfare for the Common Man, he starts off that piece by having a melody that jumps without scales. Jump, jump, the next note. John Corleano says in this case, the simplicity comes from the distance between the notes. When he first harmonizes this, he harmonizes it only with notes five notes apart and four notes apart, so we get a very bare sound instead of the full, rich chord. But Copeland also knew how to orchestrate to great effect. So it sounded simple, but it also sounded rich. I think Copeland was searching for a language that was simple enough to be recognized, but it wasn't simple-minded. It was the opposite of simple-minded, and I think a lot of his ideology comes into his music-making. Later, the fanfare was added by Copeland to his third symphony, and it took off to become the epitome of musical patriotism. This was early in Copeland's spectacular run in the 1940s, one Americana-style hit after another. The Lincoln Portrait, Danzan Cubano, 
music for movies, Rodeo, culminating in a masterpiece, which is Appalachian Spring. And there he uses shaker tunes, which of course are the essence of simplicity. Appalachian Spring won the Pulitzer Prize for Copland in 1945. And by the end of the 40s, he was back in Hollywood to do more music for films, including William Wyler's The Heiress. The envelope, please. And that earned him Hollywood's highest honor. The winner is Aaron Copland for The Heiress. And now, ladies and gentlemen... He fired off a note to his friend and fellow composer, Leonard Bernstein. Did you hear? I won an Oscar for The Heiress. Price goes up. He'd climbed to a great height. But the world was changing. Calling the House Un-American Activities Committee to order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. The House Committee on Un-American Activities had already begun its work in 1947, the same year as the start of the Cold War. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And they went right for Hollywood and the headlines. American politics was taking a radical right turn. Senator Joseph McCarthy had been voted in during the 1946 elections, and soon he broadened the targeted attacks. One communist on the faculty of one university is one communist too many. When we talk about McCarthyism, we always associate it with a particular kind of boorishness of the man. One communist among the American advisors at Yalta was one communist. And frankly, there is kind of a class prejudice in this, and uh, McCarthy's accusations against these uh, Ivy Leaguers is one of the cultural undertones of this entire era, uh, where you have people like McCarthy, kind of a working-class Irish-German, and Roy Cohn, a sort of pushy New York Jewish guy, up against the aristocrats of the State Department. He's the common man, you know, with the doubled-up fists who's going to chase the kind of effete, sissy, sellout Harvard types away from government. And don't think that's gone away or ever will because it won't. That hits a division right inside the American character. We've got to dig and root out the communists and the crooks and those who are bad for America. And as FDR used radio, so McCarthy used media in a different era. And if we have a Republican president, uh, we'll be able to get those records, I'm sure. McCarthy realizes that you could get power simply by being a media superstar in the age of radio and then especially TV, which starts coming into many American homes uh, by 1953, 1954. So McCarthy can use his live television news conferences, his telecast uh, Senate investigations to promulgate his vision of America and not incidentally to gain a kind of political power that would have taken decades to get if he had done it the old-fashioned way of slogging in the U.S. Senate. Our hero, Mr. Copeland, was caught in all this. He found himself in the publication Red Channels, along with 150 other cultural figures and journalists who were now officially on a list of the unemployable due to their political beliefs and affiliations, a blacklist. And there were a lot of lists then, which created an atmosphere of finger-pointing, innuendo, and fear. The Attorney General had a list of groups considered subversive, that is, all of the leagues and collectives and alliances 
artists and activists had joined during the common man era. If you'd ever belonged to one, you were a suspicious character. Not only artists, but also teachers, civil service workers, everyone was suspect. People in unions and other organizations were being asked to sign loyalty oaths. Later, Copeland was questioned by Senator McCarthy and Councilor Roy Cohn in a special executive session of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Government Operations. During the two-hour grilling, Copeland was courteously evasive, not refusing to answer, but rather cannily dodging every verbal bullet that came his way. What changed for America's most distinctively American composer? Well, for a while, Hollywood was not an option. He was on the blacklist. And Senator McCarthy, of all people, knew the power of cultural communicators, so he influenced the State Department to create obstacles for their work. Copeland's scores and recordings were banned in hundreds of U.S. overseas libraries, access officially denied. But what changed most dramatically was his music. The creator of this widely loved and accepted American sound adopted a more atonal, internationalist approach, much more popular after the war. Some of his supporters were mystified by the change. His best-known piece in the 1960s was Connotations for Orchestra, a much darker work for a darker, more individualistic era. He said in 1968, The idea of writing specifically American-sounding music is definitely out because the ideas and collective spirit Copeland helped to create were out. He'd been an idealist, an optimist, a patriot, and his music had captured that. Perhaps he remained all those things, but he more or less abandoned his signature sound, and he was no longer quite the shining star of music he once was. It's just very difficult to be a a creative person who lives for many decades and, you know, establishes an identity. It's hard to ride the waves of indifference when you've been used to so much prominence. And I think for Copeland, it was very painful. He still hoped to reach people with his work, he said on the Today Show in 1970. How does a man, I heard you ask it one time, how does a man go on writing when nobody listens to what he writes? I've never understood that. It's, uh, it seems to me an impossible situation to find yourself in. Yes. But, um, I don't know, the urge to write is the main thing that moves you. A story of the search by a composer and a country for a national identity with profoundly divided results. Sarah Fishko reported this piece for the WNYC podcast series, The United States of Anxiety. That's it for this week's show on the media. It's produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Terrence Bernardo. And Bill Moss mixed the Aaron Copeland piece. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. This week, we bid the fondest of farewells to an extraordinary producer and a 
great soul, Mira Sharma, who's leaving us for a future across the sea. She played a decisive role in some of our best work, including the Poverty series. We'll miss her a lot. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Yes, Mira, we will miss you. All best of luck in London. And be sure to look right before crossing. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.